want to invite you to turn to uh, Philippians chapter chapter four, uh, chapter three, uh, verse fifteen, through chapter four, verse eleven. And we want to talk about about finding serenity and having influence in the midst of of chaos. So I want to tell you a little story about uh, a Thanksgiving that we had many years ago in Oceanside, California. We had we we had one year out in California. We lived out there, and we spent Thanksgiving in Oceanside in a condo on the beach, and um, and it was very stormy the night before Thanksgiving. And so while Cindy was putting the kids to bed, I went out to the rock jetty, and I realized I could walk out on that rock jetty in the midst of the storm. Now, this is not that exact rock jetty, but it is a pretty good approximation of what it was like that night in Oceanside, California. Now, the more I walked, the more I noticed this amazing phenomenon. I was impervious to the waves. These waves would come in, and because the jetty was porous, it was like the jetty would absorb the impact of the waves as it flowed through the rocks. And I walked farther out and farther out and farther out, and pretty soon I got to the end of the jetty, and the moon had kind of swung free of the horizon. And I had this incredibly beautiful scene before me of these waves charging at me like freight trains, absorbed by the jetty, and I'm standing there, safe, secure. And the wind even helped me because the wind was an offshore breeze. So as the waves would come up and the spray would come up, the wind would drive the spray away from me. And here I was in the midst of total stormy chaos, and I am safe and secure on the jetty. And that was, that was a really, really fun experience. And what I realized that night is that there, you, you can find places of serenity in the midst of the storm, in the midst of, of the chaos. Now, we live in a very chaotic world, and it doesn't take a whole lot of convincing you that we live in a chaotic world. You think about the chaos we encounter, we got the chaos of terrorism we hear about all the time, we've got domestic chaos as people are involved in protest movements, we have urban decay, we live in a chaotic world, and in the area, era of 24-hour cable news, they're going to highlight anything and everything that comes up that spells out the chaos, because chaos sells in the news these days. So how do followers of Jesus respond to the chaos? Well, there there have been three general responses. Uh, One response is to completely extract yourself from the world. You can do that. In the third and fourth centuries, there was this group of guys called the Desert Fathers who were very, they were awesome people. I, I love the Desert Fathers. I love reading about the Desert Fathers. But their idea was to remove themselves from the world, and they did that. That's one option. And, and you could respond to the chaos by saying, I'm out of here, I'm removing myself from the world, I'm going to cocoon myself and not have anything to do with the outside world. The other response is to totally engage with the world in a negative way, in a, I shouldn't say negative way, to engage with the world in a way that says, I've got to do this now. And that's been done in the past. It's been done by people on the right, it's been done by people on the left. And the idea is that I'm going to show forth my faith by radical engagement with the political forces in the world. And wow, do people push against that. Um, Some people may feel called to that, but people 
really push against that. There's a third option. And the third option is an option that is crystal clear if you look at church history. And that option is that you live as a citizen of heaven and you recognize that the God who is sovereign over you has placed you in a sphere of influence by his sovereignty. And you say to the God of heaven, Lord, what would you have me do in this specific place? And that's a game changer. Because what that position does is it requires you to depend, radically depend upon God for information about how you engage with the immediate world that you have around you. And when you look down through church history, what you see is people who were in a particular place, they engaged with God, God showed them how they might impact that particular place, and they did it. And they changed that place, and there was a ripple effect out from that place. But it requires a supernatural relationship with the Lord in the sense that we are citizens. So in Philippians 3.15-4.1, Paul describes a citizenship from within a storm. And the people he's describing are people whom he describes as enemies of the cross. Enemies of the cross. And enemies of the cross are present in every single culture, as we'll see. And what Paul is going to ask us to do is provide sanity and influence in a culture that sometimes seems dominated by those who are enemies of the cross. There are no formulas for this. In fact, as you look down through church history, what you see is certain people did things that were counterintuitive, and yet God used them in phenomenally great ways. So let's talk about how believers have serenity and influence inside the chaos. It starts with our identity. And the truth is that you are a citizen of a new reality with an amazing future. We start off with, with verse 20, uh, in the, right in the middle of the passage, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power of that subjects all things to himself. Now, Paul has packed an enormous amount of information in that one verse. And let me, let me make some observations. First of all, your citizenship is both present and future. But Paul's point here is that your citizenship in heaven is a present reality. He's not saying, yeah, yeah, and I, I know I go to heaven when I die, so I'm, I'm just kind of, kind, of, kind of hunkering down here. I'm just kind of waiting for that time when I appear in heaven. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is you functioning as a citizen of heaven in this place right now and having influence in the sphere in which you find yourself. He talks about this idea of waiting, you know, and that's not a passive waiting. It's an active waiting. Imagine a couple is planning on getting married. The marriage is six months away. They're eagerly awaiting that date. Is there waiting a passive waiting or an active waiting? Oh no, it's an active waiting. Because there's all sorts of things that they've got to do to prepare for that day. And your citizenship in heaven is an active waiting for something in the future. But it's active in the present. You're doing things now because of what will happen to you 
in the future. So in what sense, then, would you say heaven is a present reality? In what sense is it a present reality? I'm, I'm arguing it's present and future. What sense is it a, a present reality? I want you to think about the space that's all around you, the air that you breathe, the atmosphere that's all around you. Is God there? Is God there? Of course He is. Truth be told, because God is omnipresent, God is out in the universe, God is right near you, the presence of God, because He is omnipresent, is everywhere. But before you come to Christ, you're not really aware of the omnipresence of God, are you? You might not even be sure He exists. And then you come to Christ, and suddenly you, you're aware that God's manifest presence is very near you. It's very much around you. You sense His nudgings in prayer. You sense His presence in worship. You may sense His answers to prayer on the job as you pray about your job. You sense the presence of God being very near to you. That's the kingdom of heaven right here, right now. Of course, there's a kingdom coming, but the kingdom of heaven is present. It's now. It's within the space in which you operate. God's presence right here, right now is a kingdom realm, and God wants you to be active and involved in that kingdom realm through His, through his power, through his, his resources, through the abiding ministry of Jesus Christ. That leads to a, a second observation that I, I want to make. Not only is your present, citizenship a present reality, but your citizenship gives you access to power and to influence. In other words, because you're a citizen, you have a measure of power and influence through your citizenship. You know, Paul talks about the power that enables God to subject all things to himself. God has that power. Does God give you that power in the life that you have? The answer is yes. God often uses you as a conduit of his power to subject all things to himself. Now, sometimes that, that could obviously happen through prayer, right? Somebody prays, and you happen to be an answer to their prayer. What did God just do? God just did, used you as a citizen of heaven to answer a prayer that somebody was praying. You were a conduit of God's power in that place. Being a citizenship, being a citizen means you have, con, con, you, you have a powerful influence. You might be able to do this through your service to somebody who is in need. You know, somebody says, God, thank you for what you provided for me. Well, who did the providing? You did the providing, but God was using you. Um, you can do this in your office or your clinic. If you employ people, there's a very real sense in which you have influence as a citizen of heaven by virtue of the fact that you're an employer. You can do this in the way that you bring up your kids. Many places through godly parenting, God helps you create a culture in your family that multiplies spiritual influence. So God is blessed you by giving you power and influence in this realm as a citizen. 
When you wake up in the morning, there's a real sense in which you can say, you know what, I'm a citizen of heaven. I have power in this realm to affect change in God's name. How many of you feel like, yeah, I live in that all the time? Maybe, maybe not. And yet God's passion is that you would live in that reality all the time. Here's a, here's a final observation. Your citizenship means that you are destined for greatness. Destined, destined for greatness. He contrasts your lowly body now with your glorious body later. Your lowly body now has limits, doesn't it? I know mine does. Your lowly body can sometimes be somewhat fragile. I thought I was going to be hot stuff and I was going to do weightlifting and I was making a lot of progress. I was feeling really great and I got tennis elbow. I didn't know you could get tennis elbow by weightlifting. Went to an orthopedic doctor and he said, yep, you got tennis elbow. All right, what do I do? Rehab. Went to the rehab place. And it took me a long time to get over that, okay? Lowly body now is contrasted with powerful body later. But that means you're destined for greatness. And I've said this before, but I mean, if, just, imagine, just imagine right now you had the body of an Olympic marathon runner. What would you be wanting to do immediately after the service? Go run a marathon. If you suddenly had the body of a world champion skier, what would you want to do? I'm getting on a plane and I'm going to Vail. I'm going to ski. Okay? You are destined for greatness. This lowly body now is contrasted with a great body later. So let me just sum up the observations about your citizenship. It's, it's amazing. It is a present reality. It's right now. It gives you access to power and influence right now, and you are destined for, for greatness. Now, I've got to add something to this, because um, in Paul's concept of citizenship, he also talks about this, the fact that we are saints in verse 1 of chapter 1. So we are citizen saints, but Paul says all the saints in Christ Jesus in Philippi. So when we read the book of Philippians, we have to remember, okay, I'm, I'm a citizen. I'm not just a saint. I'm not just a citizen. I'm a citizen saint, which means I am set apart for powerful citizenship within this culture. Now, as you know, being a saint doesn't mean that you're, you know, beatified as in the Catholic Church. It means you are set apart for specific service. Now, let me just hone in on that for a second. Are you working in the corporate sphere? Well, you are there by God's sovereignty. And God in His sovereignty wants you to consider yourself a citizen saint in that sphere, set apart for His service in that place. His service meaning that you work with excellence, meaning that you lead with excellence, meaning that you manifest the presence of Christ in that place. Are you working in a small business? Well, God has you there for a reason. Are you working in the food service industry? God has you there for a reason. Are you working in the healthcare field? You're there for a reason. Are you a stay-at-home mom or stay-at-home dad? You're there for a reason. 
You are a saint. You're set apart for God's specific service. So here's my plea. My plea is, if you're going to find serenity in the midst of the chaos, is to be very clear about who you are. You are not just a Christian, not just a believer, but you are somebody who is set apart for specific service because the God of the influence, the God of the, of, of, of the universe has placed you there. I also would say that you're not primarily a Texan or an Oklahoman, a Republican or a Democrat. You're not primarily an American or let's say a person from Spain or Zambia or Bangladesh. You're not primarily a businessman or a doctor. At the core of your identity is that you are a citizen of heaven with present influence who is destined for greatness. And you have the power, you have the, the, the possibility of being the power of heaven, bringing the power of heaven into your direct current situation. And again, I'm going to ask you the question, do you live in that reality every day? That's the reality that God calls you to when he says that you are a citizen saint with present power destined for greatness. Now, with that in mind, what we have to do is we have to address our choices. Now, we started in the very middle of the passage, okay? So now we go to back to the beginning of the passage, and uh, we address our choices because as citizen saints, we face choices about how we apply our citizenship in this world. So verses 15 to 19, Paul lays out two choices. and In essence, he's going to tell you you can either be a friend of the cross or you can be an enemy of the cross. He doesn't use the word friend of the cross. He uses the word enemy of the cross. But the idea of being a friend of the cross is, is implied in, in, this, in this verse. He's contrasting two different ways of thinking, contrasting two different ways of life. Friend of the cross, verse 18. Uh, enemy of the cross, verse 18, friend of the cross is an idea that is implied. Now, what is it, exactly does it mean to be an enemy of the cross? When he says enemy of the cross, uh, he's referring, well, it, when he says, just uses the word cross, he's not just referring to a piece of wood with a vertical and horizontal part. This is a figure of speech where he's referring to everything represented by the cross of Christ. Does that make sense? He's, it's, a, it's a figure of speech referring to everything. So it's Jesus' substitution, it's Jesus' suffering, it's Jesus' payment for our sins, it's His resurrection, and so much more. The cross stands for the entire reality of what Jesus did. To be an enemy of the cross means you could say, I'm not sure He was God. You could say, I don't really believe in his resurrection. You could say, I don't really like the church that Jesus died for. You could say, um, I don't like the commands of Jesus. To be an enemy of the cross is to rail against the values represented by what Jesus did. Now, look, positionally, you're a citizen of heaven, right? He just told us that. But practically, is it possible that you as a citizen of heaven could operate like an enemy of the cross? Is that possible? Well, I would have to say it is possible 
because he talks about it here. You are positionally a citizen of heaven, but it's possible at times that you could function like an enemy of the cross. Let's dig into the details. Verse 18, Paul says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame, and their minds are set on earthly, earthly things. Now, you can always tell, because of this verse, you can always tell an enemy of the cross by the culture that person conveys, by the ethos of their life. Let me just give you a, one, one kind of crazy example. When I was growing up, one of the top rock bands was the Grateful Dead. The Grateful Dead um, just did their final tour. They, they got the record for the most, the most tours. They just got their final tour in Chicago. Look at the people in Chicago, in, in Soldier Field. That event was the record for the number of people uh, in Soldier Field. Now, what's interesting about, about this group, I don't know, have no idea where they are spiritually today. Maybe they've all become, you know, solid Christians like the lead singer in Megadeth who became a Christian. Maybe they have been. But at least back in the day, they had two songs that were interesting about enemy of the cross culture. One was called Friend of the Devil. And it was just a song about hey, you know, my life, I'm a friend of the devil, and, and, and that's going to be how I kind of live my life. Another one was, was one called Hell in a Bucket, where Bob Weir would sing, I may be going to hell in a bucket, but I sure am enjoying the ride. So these guys got the record for most concerts in history and for the largest crowd in Soldier Field. There's an ethos about that. It's an ethos that says, I'm cynical about what's represented by the cross. I'm cynical. I may rail against the values of the cross. So this is partly a cultural thing. Partly, it's an aggressive persecution against people. Um, you may have heard about the, a number of people recently who were detained in North Korea and sentenced to jail. This particular guy got out, uh, and his story is a riveting story about a culture that is an enemy of the cross, and yet many people in that culture, even some of these guards, longing to know Christ. Very, very interesting, very interesting story. Those who are enemies of the cross have a culture around them. You may have heard this also, that in France, 949 attacks on churches in France all coming through, um, well, mostly coming through immigrants um, who have recently come from uh, North Africa. Um, so clearly, those who are propagating these sorts of cultures would be, in Paul's mind, classified as enemies of the cross. And, and we, you know, what Paul says is, but Paul doesn't say, no, it's no big deal, no big deal, don't sweat this too much. Um, Paul says, there are enemies of the cross, and I, I think by implication he's saying, I don't want you to edge in that direction as a follower of Jesus. Let, let's see what, how enemies of the cross are, are described, four statements. Their end is destruction. Doesn't primarily mean they're going to hell, 
what it primarily means is that they get to the end of their life and they say, what did I give my life to? I gave my life to nothing. It's like reading Sigmund Freud in his final days. You think, what a tragic way for a guy to die. His final words are pretty painful. Their worship, their God is their belly. He's not just talking about what you eat. He's talking about what you eat as a symbol of all sorts of appetites that are out of control. Money, sex, and power, just to name a few. He says they glory in their shame. Uh, shame is interesting. You know, guilt says I've done something wrong. Shame says I am someone wrong. Now, do we see people who glory in their shame in our culture? Um, you know, I think about, in a way, about Ashley Judd and uh, what, she, what she said on January 21st. Um, she said, I am a nasty woman and went on to describe what that was in detail. There's, there's an example of glorying in shame. Their worldview is they set their minds on earthly things, meaning they have an alternate worldview. It's not the worldview of an infinite personal triune God inviting people into his love, but something fundamentally different. And Paul, Paul warns us to take this seriously. It's easy to edge into that direction as an enemy of the cross. Seems like alluring and maybe sort of compelling. And, you know, Paul says, I've, I've warned you with tears. Don't go down this path. And I think the implication is that it's possible for a believer to be allured into a place where they're doing things that would constitute them as an enemy of the cross. On the other hand, Paul encourages us to move in the direction of being a friend of the cross. Again, this is not specifically mentioned in the passage, but here's what he says in verse 15. Um, we start in the middle, we go, we went kind of, kind of to the end, now we go back to the beginning. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. Some walk as enemies of the cross, others walk as friends of the cross. These apostles were clearly operating as those who are friends of the cross. So what sort of habits do people have who are friends of the cross? Well, friends of the cross live in Christ-centered communities. He has this little phrase, let those of us who are mature, right? So there is a community of people pressing on toward maturity. And people who are friends of the cross love gathering together in community with other authentic Christ followers. Friends of the cross live in grace-oriented communities. I love the fact that in verse 15 he says, you know what, if there's people who don't, don't totally buy this, or who are not quite here, there yet, it's okay. God's going to reveal it to them. Paul is describing a wonderful grace-oriented community. Friends of the people who are friends of the cross live in grace-oriented communities. One of the things this says is they're not legalistic communities. They're not small-minded communities. They're not communities where people are heaping shame on you because you said something the wrong way or wore the wrong thing or went to the wrong place. People who are friends of the cross live in grace-oriented communities. They live in discipleship relationships. Join in imitating me. 
Follow my example. I love it that he said this. Have you ever said that to somebody else? Follow my example. Follow my lead. Now, your immediate response might be, no, no, uh, I've not done that. And I'm not sure I want to do that. Because I'm conscious of my failures. So when I read that, I think, okay, God, I want to live the kind of confident life where I could say to somebody, follow, follow my example. Follow my example. Uh, now, you might be able to say it in a certain area of your life. You might be able to say, follow my example in parenting. Follow my example in physical fitness. Follow my example in the way I dig into the Word. Follow my example in that area. My encouragement to you is that you would build a portfolio of, the, of those things. We could say to somebody, look, I got three things that I think if you followed my example in these things, you would really do well. Build a portfolio of those things. I've got some areas in my life where I could say, you know what? Follow my example in this. I want to build a portfolio of more things where I can say that. But people who are friends of the cross live in discipleship relationships, and they don't, hold, they don't, they don't look back. They hold true to what you've attained. Don't look back. It is so easy to slip away. So easy to go, you know, gosh, my old life, oh, wow, it was kind of cool. I wish I could go back to my old life a little. You know, I, no, you don't. You don't want to go back to that. What you fantasize about as being cool brings with it all sorts of things that brought you addiction and pain and frustration and failure. Don't be an enemy of the cross. Now, I want to... I give you an example that I don't want you to take the wrong way, okay? But I bring this out because so many people have told me that they have gone down the wrong path with this, okay? If you're going to be a friend of the cross, I would encourage you to beware of how you deal with social media. There was a study that came out earlier this year by Brian uh, Primek, who is the director of the Center for Research on Media at University of Pittsburgh. And he recently studied 2,000 adults between the ages of 19 and 32. And his, suggestion, his findings suggested that the amount of time you spend on social media significantly increases the likelihood of depression. Brian Primek, University of Pittsburgh. doesn't just increase it. It significantly increases it. Why? He mentioned things like you start comparing yourselves to other people. You start doing social media stalking. And I've had people tell me, they just use those words, yeah, I've been doing a little social media stalking. Um, and you don't do it for the right reasons, you do it for the wrong reasons. Not getting enough likes on your post, you know? I mean, t- how many of you have like, put, put, put a post up and go, oh my gosh, I've only got five likes. And I've got 800 friends. I, I bet they hate me, I'm gonna take the post down. Um, or assuming your Facebook friends may have it better than you. Well, look, he's skiing, and he's skiing this weekend, and I got to work. They're going to Paris on, on vacation, and I got to work. And so you start comparing yourselves to other, to other people. Um, I have seen Christians on social media become bitterly, bitterly divided on theological minutiae on political 
minutiae. I've heard people defriending people on Facebook and then blasting them with all sorts. These are people who say that they're followers of Christ and then blasting other people on social, on social media. Here's why I bring this up. Here's why I bring this up. You are too smart to become an enemy of the cross on your own. You're not going to wake up morning, you know, I'm going to be an enemy of the cross right now, right today. I'm going to be an enemy of the cross. You're too smart for that. So what ends up happening is you get edged into that ever so slowly by some of the habits that you, that you move into. And so that brings us to the third component of this passage, is that you want to remove what hinders love. Remove what hinders love. And this comes from Philippians 4, verse 1. If you want to release the power of heaven as a citizen of heaven, what you want to do is you want to remove what hinders love. Now, I want you to listen to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Now, do you hear the number of times Paul uses words related to love? My beloved, not just beloved, my beloved. I long for you. You are my joy and my crown. You are my beloved. Paul is pouring out these words of love. Now, I will tell you, in Philippi, in the first century, this was not common language. Paul is importing a culture in these words that conveyed something different than the culture around him. He was removing what hinders love. What hinders love? Pride, arrogance, self-sufficiency. I don't need the apostle Paul. I don't need the people. All those things are things that hinder love. Paul is removing those things that hinder love. So if you want to have serenity in the midst of the chaos, what, what, what can you do in your life that removes what, what hinders love? Are there people that you find it hard, hard to forgive? Are there people that you get really angry at and, and you, you just can't forgive them for the things that they've done? There are all sorts of things in cultures that hinder love. My, my daughter... <clears throat> um, Married, met and married a wonderful guy from the UK, our son-in-law, Richard Oliver. And Sarah is very outgoing. And sometime, early on, Sarah would say, Dad, it, the British stiff upper lip. I, 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 don't, I don't get it. And she says, I'm, I'm out there with my emotions, and, and I, I don't get holding emotions in and being stoic with emotions. I don't understand that. And um, we have to remove those things which hinder love, and Paul, Paul is doing that in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 1. Why do we have to do that? The reason why is because you and I have been invited into the circle of the triune God, who is love for all of eternity. You and I have been invited into the circle of the love of the triune God so that we would be nourished by His love and so that we would pour out that love toward other people. And if we're going to be instruments of God's serenity and impact in the midst of chaos, we have to be those people in the chaos who convey love. 
who convey proactive love, who pour out themselves to people in pain, who are compassionate to people who are, who are in need, who lift up people who are lowly, who, needed, who need to be lifted up. People who have that kind of loving, proactive, loving attitude are conduits of God's power inside those places of chaos. So there I was out on the rock jetty in the midst of the storm. Everything was going my way. Everything's going my way. And I'm watching the moon rise. The waves are coming through. The wind is pushing the waves, the, the, the waves away. It was, it was just so cool, so cool. And then a surfer comes in, and he clambers up the rock jetty with the board. He jumps the other side of the rock jetty, gets back on his surfboard, and takes the wave right in. And I'm thinking, what in the world? That's unbelievable. The athleticism of this was unbelievable. I had a measure of chaos in the storm. This guy had it in spades. He was in the chaos. Rock jetty gave him a temporary shelter in the chaos, and then he's back in the chaos again on the surfboard with some athleticism I had never seen before. God wants you to have serenity and power inside the chaos right where you live now, today. In the classroom, that's where he wants you to have it. In a small business, that's where he wants you to have it. In a corporation, that's where he wants you to have it. Wherever you are right now, what God wants is for you to have serenity and influence inside the chaos and ask him, Lord, show me what's next. Show me what's next. What do you have for me tomorrow and the next day and the next week? I want to be a conduit of power, serenity, influence in the midst of the chaos of our culture. See, it's really easy to get discouraged about the chaos. And you think you've got power in the chaos because you watch cable TV and you've got an, you've got a, an, an opinion about things. Or because you, you may say things in your Twitter feeds and you have opinions about things and think that's going to influence people. What God wants is for you to take the real place where you are and have influence there and trust that that influence will then be multiplied. You do that, you do that, and you are manifesting your citizenship in heaven in a very powerful way. Let's stand for a closing prayer. Father, we want to thank you for the chaos that um, is around us. Um, we've never not had chaos around us. I mean, that's part of living in a fallen world. It's present in all cultures around the world. It's present down through history. And Lord, what you've done is you've, you've called believers to be instruments, conduits of your power and even serenity in the midst of the chaos. Lord, show us how we might do that tomorrow in the places where we are. And Father, I just pray that, that we would be able to maybe take some time this week and just tell you, meditate on what it, what it means to be a citizen. Lord, help us be more robust citizens of heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you need prayer, our prayer team is up here, and they would love to pray for you about anything that's going on in your life.